Welcome to episode 138 of The Effect Podcast. The end is near. I'm Dave. Is the end near already, Dave? Because uh, I, I, I thought we were going to record a whole programme already. <laughs> well, cosmically speaking, the end is near, isn't it? Certainly for... Well... <laughs> For all of us. Yeah, cosmically speaking, the end is near for all of us. But just to reassure everybody, it's not the end of our podcast, uh, no, either no. in terms of episodes or of this episode. Otherwise, it would be the shortest episode we've ever done. I'm Matthew, by the way. <laughs> Which might be a blessing, some people are right th- <laughs> thinking right now. <laughs> um, yes. Um, yeah, so what have we got lined up for today then, Matt? Oh, we've got lots of exciting news to talk about uh, uh today so we've got the world of gaming all sorts of things happened in there including an announcement from free league that they did warn us about months ago didn't Mm. they dave but we totally forgot about it (laughs) so it was a rather pleasant surprise when it was teased (laughs) and then we've got one of our patrons uh actually coming on the show to talk a little bit about that announcement and uh, not not in interview form he's actually done an essay so you managed to get out of doing your homework this week. <laughs> exactly. What's you know? What's the point of having lovely patrons if they can't do some of the work for us? So. Uh, that is very true. That is very true. Well, except for the fact they pay us to do all the the, the other stuff we do. Well, I guess anyway. they, they they pay us to do the work in the first place, don't they? So that's yeah. Okay, I'll take that back. Um, why yeah? <laughs> why 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 did we let him do that then? Because he's such a fan of the property that we are talking about, and it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a good bit of insight as well, isn't it? Actually, so anyway, yeah. yeah. And I did, I did spend a lot of the time that morning teasing him about the teaser because I knew what it was and he didn't, <laughs> um, and I quite enjoyed that. So yeah. I, had to, I, I had to throw him a fish. That's to, uh, that's uh, fair. <laughs> you are likening our friend there, though, to a seal, aren't you? Or a dolphin. To a performing seal, yes. <laughs> yeah. Not a very well-behaved or very well-trained performing seal. No, that's but, true. But yeah, a that's performing true. seal. He does say more than so long and thanks for the fish, though. Mm. Anyway. A yeah, lot let's... more. A lot more. <laughs> uh, then we've got Krista Sunderlin on the show. And who is Krista Sunderlin, I hear you ask? Well, he's a lovely, lovely fellow from Helmgast, who is the mind and brain behind Troubleshooters. The Troubleshooters yeah. RPG. So we had a lovely interview yes. with him oh, a couple of weeks ago now, but I think the, the Kickstarter is still up and running, but we can talk about that a bit in the world of gaming. Yeah, as we get there. Yep. Um, then I've got my promise piece. You see, when two of us get homework, one of us actually does it, even if they're writing it on the bus on the way into school. Um, <laughs> and in this case, that was me. Metaphorically speaking, obviously... In this time of uh, social distancing, I'm not on a bus on the way into school. No. Uh, but we, I've got uh, the last of our pieces, which is on the Order of the Pariah. Seeing if we hadn't been in lockdown, you would have been on a bus going to school? Uh, no, no. Because that <laughs> that's a bit kind of what you perfect. were implying. Yeah, exactly. It would be a bit strange. 
No, all I meant was I did it rather at the last minute, as you well know, Dave. Because you read it to me at the last minute. Yes. Yes, as you were recording it. Which was about 10 minutes ago, in fact, in real time. Um, So I'll need to edit some of my mistakes out of that, but that's that's all (laughs) in the bag anyway. um, And then that'll be the end of our show, Dave. We'll be saying goodbye and so long and thanks to all the fish. Yes, and the one thing that I had, um, well, the homework you gave me last time which has been postponed because we got such a um, smorgasbord cornucopia of goodies already this week, is I'm going to be looking at some of the stuff that some people have put up on the Free League Workshop, including one of our lovely patrons who... Um, great segue, what Dave! What a great segue! Go on, you, could, go on you, you like to name them, don't you, mate? Hey, I'm happy not naming them, but um, if people uh, from... Uh, other countries are prepared to put up with my horrendous pronunciation, I will. <laughs> but I will start off with that segue. So one of our new patrons is Millie the GM, who is the author of at least one of the pieces that I sent you that we got off the um, um, uh, drive through RPG off from the workshop. Free workshop. Yeah. And uh, she has put together, in fact, a whole series of Tales from the Loop adventures based in the north in Lancashire, I think, around that area, and based on local legends and stuff there too. So I don't know what you think of it. I don't know whether you've had a chance to read it yet. I haven't we'll, looked um... did it yet. I haven't looked at the other ones yet either. I will do so before the next episode. But I, I will have to say that having spent three years uh, living when I was at university in Lancaster, up in, the, up in the northwest, I love that part of the world. It's absolutely fabulous. I've got a lot of friends who still live up there. And um, I'm really looking forward to looking at Millie's um, Tales from the Loop stuff from the Northwest. That should be cracking. Excellent. So that's something you'll you'll be doing between now and when we next record. Yes. And I should say that Millie also runs a podcast. She does. An actual play podcast. I think it's mostly D&D, uh, but I did notice a bit of Alien there, Chariot of mm. the Gods. And that is called Roll to Hit. Cool. Um, the yeah. role being... R-O-L-E, when you type it in. It's a pun, yes. you see. <laughs> are, are you patronising me or our listeners? Sorry, Matt? Millie, I've just ruined your, your cleverly... <laughs> I, forgive me. Forgive me for this terrible shout-out. But anyway, uh, thank you very much yes. for becoming a patron, even yeah. if it is only for this last couple of months. <laughs> yeah, what, when, he, when she leaves in disgust after your comments. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just also forgetting the other patrons uh, that we should also be nope. saying thank you to. We're certainly not forgetting and, them. Well, no, not at all, not at all. Andreas Kron is uh, uh, one of our patrons. Um, I don't know that he runs a podcast at all. I don't know much about Andreas, but hi, Andreas, and thank you very much. Indeed. And Pedro Dodero Escalante is another one of our patrons who's joined in the last month. So thank you very much, Pedro. Thank you to all of you. It's a delight to have you on board and um, look forward to to chatting with you on on our Discord for those that I haven't chatted with already. But yeah, thank you. Okay, so what's been happening in the world of gaming? Well, there's been a few bits and bobs, hasn't there, really? Um, Oh, hasn't there? Well, the first thing I was going to mention was something I just mentioned a minute ago, which was the the Troubleshooters Kickstarter. I, I haven't looked it up. I should look it up now. I think there's a few days left on it. Yes, there as, are. We're recording we this on Friday the 29th. Yeah. And uh, it's still got a way to go. Less than a week, I think, now, though. I think it's going to close. I mean, it hasn't got a way to go in that it's funded already, quite comfortably. Oh, um, 
Yes. Now, you've, we have a lovely interview with um, Krista Sunderlin um, to play you shortly in this episode, so I won't do any spoilers there. But um, Five the, the... days to go at the time of recording. Right, so right. when you're listening to this, there's probably only one two. or two days to go. Get yeah. to Kickstarter <laughs> and back this game. Um, so one of the premises of our interview was I didn't know very much about the game other than what Matt had told me and then I forgot and what Matt then told me again and I forgot. Um, so the premise was for Krista to sell me the game. And you can listen in, obviously, in a few minutes and see how well he does. See whether he managed to do it or not. Indeed. He sold the game to me by commissioning a cover with a red 2 CV on the front. Because <laughs> yeah. I'll buy any game like that. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's a beautiful looking book, actually. Yeah, yeah. really nicely designed, really fits in with the theme, beautifully illustrated in the sort of Franco-Belgian detective comic style. Yeah, it's a yeah. great looking game. Played it... Um, now you've played it I, twice now, I think, two sessions. Is I've had right? three, sessions three sessions of it. They're all on our YouTube channel, which is YouTube slash C slash Effect Podcast, if you want to check them out. I like that there's much I like about it. We did get rather bogged down in the last scene in a combat, which um, in it's a percentile die system and... Um, it was one of those really whiffy uh, games where everybody was rolling 97 or something <laughs> okay. just like that. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And I won't bore everybody until maybe we can talk about it in more detail a bit later on. But um, there's a there's a method of doing challenges, which I could have done for this and I didn't because I felt it was rather too short and slightly anticlimactic. But I kind of wish I had. <laughs> okay. So, um so yeah, uh, at know, some point we'll you, talk you, about the rules. You should have been following the rules as written, Matt, shouldn't you, for that first game, and see how it goes. I should have been. You know me. I I like to do that, and you I do. still think I was. I think that kind of um, challenge thing is a kind of optional thing. Ah, okay. But I wish I'd, I'd I wish I'd taken that option. Right. Right. Uh, well, in let, that particular case, maybe we can talk about that in a bit more detail after everyone's listened to what Krista had to say. Um, what else is there in World of Gaming that um, you want to talk about this week? Um, yeah, now you've got me stuck. I can't remember. What were you we talking about uh, this week? Um, <laughs> so the Game Master's Guide has come out. Yes. For Simba Room. Indeed. Now, that's not a, not a thing that I'm interested in because I don't Game Master Simba Room. Uh, but have you got it, Dave? No, I haven't got it, no. Um, but I'm interested to. I, I didn't back it when, it when it came up. It's on pre-order again now, I think, or... or... Oh, I think you can get it. Uh, I think it's pre-order, or you can get it in PDF. PDF from, form, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm I'm really tempted to get it. Matthias's work is is very very good. The premise of the the, the game master guide is to is more than just Simbroom. I think it's intended to be a a guide for game masters for any game. So lots of good generic advice about how to run a great game. Um, so I'll probably pick it up on PDF at some point. Uh, in the not too distant future, but I, I don't have it yet. Again, I'm mm. I'm not sure when I'm next going to run Simba Room, but I'm really interested to hear what Mateus has to say about game mastering in general. Yeah, maybe we should get Mateus to come and talk to us about game mastering in general. I, I think we might do that. Yeah, that sounds like a good yeah. idea. I yep. saw the cover of it, and it looks lovely, beautiful artwork as usual. Um, but it looked kind of like militaristic. So I asked uh, one of our patrons, Phil, who um, has got it already and 
uh, I asked him, does it have mass combat rules of a sort? And he said it did. And the way he explained uh-huh. it, it has exactly the sort of mass combat rules that I like for role playing, which is you're in a battle. You're not necessarily running it. This is how we simulate what it feels like to be in a battle and let you do some heroic things yeah. while in the battle, which is what I think every game system that might be tending towards mass combat, which isn't troubleshooters, I've got to say. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no. You know, that's the sort of system I look for. That's what I, I really like about fourth edition um, uh, Legend of the Five Rings, because I, I like their battle system. No, it doesn't simulate a battle. No, it's not, you know, getting millions of figures out on the board and moving mm. about for four hours. But it gives you a flavour of what it must be like. And... I'd like to see those rules at some point, Dave, when you um, when you finally purchase it. <laughs> well, thanks. No, I, I I'd be interested to see those as well. I, as you know, I've got this kind of burning desire to do a uh, a Roman role playing game set in the mm-hmm. the late Republic. A big element of that would be battles, but again, I absolutely don't want to do a battle system that takes more than. 45 minutes or an hour to run the whole battle which includes all the player interaction and all the player heroics and stuff as well um something along the lines of the battles that our friend andy uh, always runs in pendragon where you feel mm. like you've got a little bit of control over the sweep of the battle if you're the commander but also you're in the action as well and i and it, and it resolves the battle in a really satisfying but also really quick uh quick way and that's kind of what i'm aiming for in, in what I'm thinking about for this Roman game. Whenever that will come out, who knows, uh, if ever. But um, it's, a, it's a pet project of mine. I, you know, As everybody probably knows by now, um, I did a lot of Roman history at university. I have a great love and affection for the period and would love to kind of recreate that feel in the game because I think there's maybe not an enormous market out there for, for it, but I suspect there's other people who are similar to me who would love to get a, have a good Roman campaign. But yeah. So I'll be interested to have a look at that and see. And so the other thing we're doing uh, as well, just touching upon that, is revising our uh, nascent uh, Western game, uh, Tales of the Old West. Yep. Um, And we've just made some quite big sort of philosophical changes Hmm. about how it runs. We're writing those up. So patrons of the right level, you'll be seeing a new playtest packet relatively soon for that. Yeah. And I'm I'm quite keen to do some more playtesting. I had been playtesting with my um, my little group down the pub over the last couple of years. And interestingly enough, when we when the when the group expanded and we ended up with too many players for just one evening, so we were starting to look at running two games per evening and letting lots of other people run run games. We had a little vote on who wants to play what, and Tales of the Old West came out top quite convincingly mm. um which was very very flattering um but everyone loved it um everyone really enjoyed it and it's uh so i think we're doing something right obviously there's a long way to cool. go yes there's a long way to go with it but i think we're uh, we're on to something here i think yeah yeah no I, I i well you know we both hold it close to our hearts as it were i worry that it's not you know it's quite a niche market because it's cowboys, and it doesn't feature anything weird, weird westy in it at all. Yeah, um, I, but I, as as a game creator, as we are doing this, as we are, <laughs> no. 
yeah, maybe not professional game creators yet particularly, but, you know, game creators. Uh, I want to create the game that I want to play. Now, exactly. I, I think that a, you know, Cowboys versus Aliens or Zombies and Aliens or whatever, I think they're even more niche than a, just a good old-fashioned Western. And so I think, um, as you say, it's not going to be a and d mass market thing, obviously, um, but... I think there'll be a lot of people out there, probably more, who'd want to do a good old Wild West thing than would perhaps want to do a Roman thing. But I, I hope there's a sufficient interest in both for them both to be, uh, you know, to, yeah. to gain some traction one day. But I think we're yeah. definitely onto something. We've definitely got something about the feel right. And the the Year Zero engine works beautifully for it. We've made a few amendments to that to, to fit the fit the genre and fit what we want. And I think they're pretty good. So, um, yeah, well, I'm, what I'm thinking is once I can get, um, once we've got this second packet out there and I can start playtesting it Third again. Packet. Third packet. Um, <laughs> we might, they might record those and put those out as actual plays and just see what people yeah, think. Yeah. We did one from the first um, playtest that you, me and Tony did, actually. We've got that recording still locked away. We, did we ever um, put that out? We didn't, did we? We didn't put it out. No, no, no. no. Maybe um, we should dust that uh, off because again, that was a good game. I mean, that was interesting, and we are really digressing here on world of yeah. gaming. It's not really; it's, it's our world of gaming. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's our very small world of gaming. It's our little, <laughs> it's, it's little our, village of gaming. It's our it's asteroid cool. of gaming. Um, but in that, that was interesting because the game took us somewhere where we hadn't really expected to go, and it became yeah. a bit of an investigation. And it was it was really good. I really enjoyed it, but. Um, I think there's an element of of the Wild West, which is life in the big cities, such as they were, um, which yeah. is something else that could be played out as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other thing, just to just to round off um, round off this, Toto, you and I, well, no, not even Toto. Um, you and I have spoken before quite a bit about my my love and my hatred of Star Trek adventures, all at the same time. And yeah, you're you're mixed feelings. I do. Well, I say it's the two. Yeah, it's the two extremes. I I love the game. I've loved playing it. I've loved running it, but I don't like it very much um, for various reasons. But I've often talked about an ambition or idea to do a uh, a year zero version, and I've started fiddling about with that. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I've got maybe I've got too much time on my hands at the moment. Too much time to fiddle. Yeah, this is lockdown talking. This is. It, it is a bit, but work's kind of caught up with me, so I'm having to do more and more work as well now, so it's a bit of a slight inconvenience, frankly, but, you know. Anyway, that's so pro- talking, probably So talking enough. of our names in the credits and being game creators, your name is in the credits of a page that I've seen. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't been able to hold it myself, uh, but you've, you've share, shared me a screenshot of the uh, opening page of the PDF with my name in it as well as a playtester, <laughs> but... Yeah. But yours, and what is that? Oh, that's um, Alien Role-Playing Game Destroyer of Worlds, which uh, I think mm. I've mentioned before I was lucky enough to be asked to do a bit of work on. So I've um, I got a, an editing credit and an additional writing credit in that, in, that, in that game, which is brilliant. So I got to see the, uh, yeah, the mostly, mostly finished article and then gave it a good edit and added a little bit and amended a few bits. Um, you know, built on what Drew Gasker had done uh, already, built um, on our experience of it. Yes, um, and the playing it. and the playtesting of it, 
And yeah, it's um, I think at the moment it's with Fox for final approval before it goes to the printers, and then it will be on in people's hands in the not too distant future. And there seems to be a lot of interest and excitement about it. I hope everyone enjoys it. It's I mean, you you played it. It's a it's quite it's a great. broad it's a broad scenario. There's quite a lot going on. Don't mm-hmm. expect to do it in one afternoon. That's for sure. No, um, don't expect to do it in one afternoon. <laughs> and I just want to point out. On the drive-through RPG uh, store where you buy your PDFs, Alien is still, still in the top ten. Right. The basic, you know, the core. Yeah, book. cool. I think that's astounding news. It is. Uh, it is amazing, isn't it's it? It's a really popular game. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's been helped because over the lockdown, they've, you know, they've, they've slashed the price in half. It's 50% off. Um, we will put links in the show notes. Yep. And, uh, but yeah, it's a mythral bestseller at the moment. I don't mm-hmm. know what a mythral bestseller is, but it sounds good, doesn't it? Sold a few. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's mythral is one down from Adamantine, and it means in all the products they've sold, only 189 have become mythral bestsellers. Wow. Out of how many do you think? Well, so um, to give you an idea of. Copper bestsellers, there are 12,699 <laughs> right. of those. Wow. Yeah. There's 13,000 odd silver bestsellers. Um, okay. And Adamantine bestsellers, which is, if you like, top rank, uh, that's uh, 73 of those products. Right. That's pretty damn impressive, isn't it, actually? That is yeah, very the good. Cyberpunk Red um, Jumpstart kit that we talked about. A few weeks ago, that's a an Adamantine bestseller. Oh wow! Yeah, that's done pretty well to get up there so quickly. Blimey, that is impressive. Yeah, a lot of lot of love out there. For yeah, because uh, our 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 friend and patron Pete had uh, I think had a voucher for it or something, and he sent it through to me, so I've got it on my shelf here. Um, so kind of obliged to to run it at some point. But uh, yeah, I mean it's it, it's got very very good, very similar feel to twenty twenty. Um, back in the day, it's uh, yeah. I think the start of the Jumpstart kit. I mean, there's not a lot in there as you'd expect, really. But I mean, the game itself. Say, so it's I ran a hell of a lot of that back in the day. It's um, one of my favourite, one of my favourite genres and games. That is. We're burying the lead here, though. We've teased it at the top of the show. We haven't <laughs> mentioned it yet. What is the big news in the world of gaming? Um. Well, it might be. Dave, do I have to kill you? <laughs> yeah, or possibly. It might be something that our friend Andy was very excited about. Twilight 2000, new edition announced by Free League, working with uh, Mark Miller. <clears throat> Thomas Harumstram is uh, is obviously the guy from Free League dealing with it, because uh, last time we talked to him some time ago, outside of the interview we gave him, he was sharing his love for Twilight 2000, yeah, wasn't he? absolutely, yeah. So I think they've been looking for this one for a long time. You know, they, they've spoken to us a few times about their sort of uh, strategy, annual strategy gathering get-together they have, where they sit down and kind of um, wish wishful think, and then they go and turn those wishful thoughts into getting the Alien license and getting the license for Twilight 2000, which is brilliant. Yeah. So I'm really intrigued by this one. Uh, Mm. I didn't play much Twilight 2000 in our youth. I think it happened a lot when, well, I think when you and I were both away at university or something. I can't remember exactly. 
I played in one campaign that our friend Mark ran, but it wasn't mm. wasn't a long campaign. I don't remember a lot about it, other than my um, my character was Sergeant Sam Larkin, and I pushed somebody out of the back of a truck when we were escaping. But I don't remember much else. And I think I played in one scenario, if that. Yep. Um, so I don't remember much about it, but it was gritty. It was. Um, it wasn't as bad as Phoenix Dawn Command. No, not Phoenix Dawn Command. Phoenix, Phoenix Command. Command. Yeah. Which had, if you like, the same uh, thesis behind it. Uh, slightly post-Third World War skirmishing. I am struggling to see how that's going to work with um, with the 3League engine, with the Year Zero engine. Yeah. Well, yeah. But I think they are, they are looking at making some... Um, some modifications to that. So mm-hmm. there was an announcement in one of the newsletters that they were um, trialing a two dice system rather than a dice pool system. But mm. I, I don't know anything else about it than that. But if we want to learn a little bit about Twilight 2000 and some of the background to it, some of the history, why don't we listen to our friend Andy's essay, which gives us lots of that kind of information. Good choice. Let me take you back 34 years to 1986. The world was still locked in the Cold War. The USA and USSR fought proxy wars across the globe. Unknown to the public at the time, NATO's able archer exercise, just three years beforehand, had brought the world to the brink of mutually assured destruction and almost inadvertently triggered the Third World War. Ronald Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars Project, was threatening the balance. Threads, a haunting tale of post-nuclear survival, was only two years old. The UK was still basking in its last act of imperialism, the Falklands War. Everyone lived with the fear of the bomb and the four-minute warning. Of course, eventually all this changed. The Berlin Wall came down, the USSR fell apart, the Cold War ended. But in 1986, things were still pretty bleak. Published by Game Designers Workshop that year, Twilight 2000 was a game where things got worse, not better. Unlike previous military RPGs like Recon, Twilight 2000 was less about the conflict and more about surviving the aftermath, providing a more down-to-earth, character-driven story. Originally set soon after a nuclear exchange, which spared the planet but not humanity, it told the story of US soldiers stuck in war-torn Europe with dwindling supplies and trying to get back home. Later supplements expanded the setting to the US itself, the Caribbean, Mexico and elsewhere, and revealed the full horrific destruction of World War III. Building on GDW's years of experience of simulated war games and real-life military service, it was gritty, realistic and dark. There was simply was not, at the time, anything quite like it, and I fell in love with it. Originally, Twilight was a unique system, based around six core stats, Fitness, agility, constitution, stature, intelligence, and education, all generated on 4d6 and sometimes combined. A percentage-based skill system, a huge departure from the 2d6 system of other GDW games, was used for the first time. Damage was recorded per hit location. Characters accumulated radiation over time, realistically measured in RAD. The game was a huge success, and well over 30 detailed supplements and adventures followed in quick succession. The backstory of the Third World War, or the Twilight War as it became called, was so detailed, 
It was extended by three centuries to provide the future history of another GDW property, Traveller 2300, later known as 2300 AD. By 1993, however, Twilight 2000 was looking dated. The Cold War was long over, and the former USSR was in pieces. Stories of a World War III that never was were no longer in vogue. People were looking ahead to a different future and living in a different world. So GDW updated the system, and Twilight 2000 version 2.2 was released. This version was designed as part of a new D20-based house system to be used across all GDW games, including Dark Conspiracy and Traveller, the new era, allowing supplements for one game to be used by another. As a long-time Traveller referee, this was exceptionally good news for me. I could design equipment and vehicles using Traveller's Fire Fusion and Steel, for example, and use it immediately in both games. At the front of the book, a chilling prologue reminded us that democracies have always made war on democracies, that Hitler was elected and served to set the new backstory. Not the Cold War gone hot anymore. Instead, a war driven by different triggers, such as an economic collapse, disease, the first Gulf War, Chinese Democratic Revolution and Sino-Russian conflict. Additionally, if the end of the world as we know it did not appeal, GDW also released Merc 2000, a companion title where the Twilight War never happened. Version 2.2 was sadly the last edition of Twilight 2000 ever published by GDW. For reasons better chronicled elsewhere, the company went under. For 15 years, Twilight 2000 was left forgotten. Then, in 2008, the rights to a third edition of the game were acquired by 93 Game Studios, a Canadian company who advanced the timeline to 2013, and who changed the rule system again to their Reflex 2D20 system. However, this relaunch, named Twilight 2013, was not particularly successful, and the company went out of business leaving the rights to revert to Mark Miller, one of the original founders of GDW. Which brings us to the present day. Enter Free League, who will now publish the system in partnership with Mark Miller, set in an alternate timeline derived from the original game. This edition will be based on their best-selling Year Zero engine, as well as their hex-crawling mechanic from Forbidden Lands, for randomly generated content. Free League have also stated that they will adapt their Year Zero engine to the grim mood of Twilight 2000 and its focus on military equipment and operations. Illustrated by Martin Grip, whose previous work includes the Dystopia of Symbarum, this new edition is certainly very promising, and the Kickstarter is due to commence in August this year. Welcome again to the Third World War. Well, that's really, really interesting insight. Now, I, I knew a little bit about this game. I say I played it a bit, but, I mean, I didn't have that kind of encyclopedic background knowledge. I don't know how much research Andy had to do or whether he just dredged that from the, you know, the... the, the from the, the depths of depths his depths fetid of his, mind. <laughs> of his limitless brain, such as it might be. Um, but no, it's really interesting. And I, I think for Free League, this is an enormous challenge, actually. Because for a number of reasons. One, I think if they are going to be modifying the Year Zero engine, or, I mean, is it still the Year Zero engine if they change it from a dice pool to a two-dice system? Mm -hmm. Although we don't know for sure that's going to happen yet. So they said they were, yeah. they, they're they experimenting with some ideas. Um, so, we, you know, let's not jump the gun. We don't know what the, the final um, uh, mechanics will be. So let's not, you know, diss it too early. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see if they do take the Year Zero engine in another direction. And Thomas's track record of tweaking his system is 
brilliant. So, you know, we can always hope for good things, whichever way he takes it, it'll be something interesting and exciting and almost certainly it'll be a really good development. I think Yeah, other... I mean Yeah, go on. It's it's <clears throat> interesting, isn't it? If you think what do you suppose a year ago or earlier before we'd started playing it, because we're on the anniversary of us playing uh, Alien at UKGE. This we are. Weekend. We haven't. We haven't even mentioned that, have we? I mean, how what a bloody miss yeah. that is. So yeah, this is. We're recording this on the Friday that would have been UK Games Expo. <laughs> Don't sob. Don't okay. sob. Look, I'm ta- okay. I, I, I've got a train of thought here, and you're. I know. You're running a bloody great freighter right through it. Sorry, mate. Go on. Get get on with your train <sighs> of thought. Sorry. Just change the points. Avoid the collision. <laughs> keep us all on the rails and. The rails are this. So can you imagine over a year ago, somebody who is a big Alien fan and they were told that the creators of the Terrace and the Loot role-playing game are doing Alien, you'd be thinking, well, they're going to make a hash of that one, aren't you? (laughs) I mean, if you're not us and we knew what was happening. Yeah. Um, And it was fabulous. So I imagine there's a whole bunch of Twilight 2000 uh, uh, fans out there who pick up a go Tales in the Loop or something like that and go, well, kids, you don't even die? How the hell is that, Twilight 2000? And and yet they will be, I'm sure, pleasantly surprised. Yes, so that was the other point, the next point I was going to make exactly. It's that there is such a... um, uh, Well, actually, quite I think quite a quiet but very large community out there that's kind of come out of the woodwork on this announcement... And there's a lot of them who are, what's the right word? Of, skeptical? Skeptical, concerned. Cautious. Cautious about how um, the you know, the Zero engine will translate into what is a pretty crunchy, uh, detailed game. Whereas the Free League games, you know, get the, in my view anyway, get such a good balance between the level of detail and crunch and the level of simplicity that it that it works brilliantly for me. That's um, what drew me to Coriolis in the first instance. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a big sump of people out there, and I don't mean sump in a derogatory way at all, a big pool of people out there who are going to take some convincing, I think. Um but like you say, they did such a good job with Alien. Uh it hit all of those key um points that it needed to hit. And you know that Twilight 2000 edition, whatever this will be, five, is it? Four? Couldn't be in better hands, actually, for um, you know, for a new edition. Especially with Mark Miller involved as well. It's, uh, you know, the, the original the original is there in him, and the new is there in Free League, and going on their track record so far. And the love is there in Thomas as well. Yeah, you know, absolutely. He's, he's yeah. really keen for it. So. And going on their track record... Um, I think we should all give them the, the benefit of the doubt that it's going to be pretty good until we see it. I know there's been quite a lot of fairly unpleasant stuff that I've seen on social media. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, just just being needlessly negative and well, quite, I mean, vo- interesting... quite vocally um, shitting all over, or Alien, for, for example, and saying, because Alien was so shit, this is going to be shit. Um, and then mm. not, and then not listening to other people who say, well, actually, you might not like Alien, but a lot of people do, and there's a lot of good in it. Um, so I'm, I'm just a bit concerned that there are people's um, uh, sacred cow of old version of Twilight 2000 
might lead them to be less forgiving than they might otherwise have been if they don't like it. I guess it's a it's... funny old thing, isn't it? Because they've still got their old version Twilight 2000. Yeah. If they're still playing it, they can still play it. Yes. Um, if this new version is everything they feared about the game, they can just ignore it. Yeah, precisely. Can't they? Um, yeah. Indeed, indeed. And, I, um, and obviously they didn't buy enough copies beforehand to keep it going in, in <laughs> its last format or whatever um, whatever their preferred version is. It was really interesting that all of this um, uh, you know, excitement and uh, publicity sent me to drive through to buy the first edition Twilight 2000 PDF. Uh, all right. Which is great. So, I'm so really... you can still get it. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was $9 or something, $12, something like that. Um but uh, cheapest chips. But yeah, I mean, it's pretty cheap, and so I, yeah, my my nostalgia was tweaked enough to make me go and buy it, and as so I'm reading through it again, and it is funny, isn't it? I mean, you you can chart the way that the games industry has evolved over the last forty years by looking <laughs> at a book that was published in nineteen whatever it was nineteen ninety, and looking at a book published in twenty twenty, and they're just they're just the the style and the presentation style and obviously the you know a lot of the mechanics are more diverse now um it's a much meatier thing to get into because <laughs> there's a mm. lot of text but it was a great game i love playing it back in the day even though as i say i didn't play it a lot and and it's it's really really nice sort of reading through the the book again sort of reminding myself of of what a fun game it was but i think the new version will be just that it'll be a new version and hopefully they'll capture all the things that everyone loved about the original Twilight 2000 and um, add to them. And people will be pleased, I hope. Excellent. Well, that's something to look forward to. That will um, only be kick-started in August and will only be hitting people's um, bookshelves in, in, in 2021, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think it said January 21, but I suspect that's a little bit hopeful. Yeah, might be a bit later than that. I, I might be wrong with that. It might be March twenty-one, but still, they're not so far well, away. Let's wait and see. Something that's going to happen before then, I'm sure, is the Troubleshooters RPG. Oh yeah. And um, as Dave said at the top of the show, we got Krista Sunderland in to talk about creating it. So we're with Krista Sunderland and. Uh, <laughs> Krista is the creator of the Troubleshooters, um, which came on Kickstarter as we're recording this yesterday. It's already made its target amount, so everything it earns over the next. Uh, how long are you are you running the Kickstarter for, Krista? We are running it for three weeks. Twenty days left, something. Excellent. So we'll be people will be listening to this with about a week to go of the of the podcast when, when they hear this. Of the kickstart, yeah. Um, so Dave, we'll have to update update everybody on, on uh, how far it's got and what the stretch goals are in, in, when we do the chat. But um, uh, Krista, we asked us of every new guest on the show, would you like to tell us about your life in gaming? Uh, it started when I was 12 years old of the local uh, translated version of basic role playing. Uh, it was called Drakar of the Demoner, <laughs> Demons, yeah. and um, uh, it has been uh, the staple of Swedish gaming ever since. 
it's a, it kind of have survived in, uh, since 1982 until present day. Mm. Um, it has been a lot of other games as well, um, including Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Vampire, a lot of that stuff. Uh, with forays into the uh, indie, uh, into the indie games, mm -hmm. um, and well, yeah. Okay, and you were um, you were with or for Helmgast? I mean, were you working with Helmgast before I, the troubleshooters? I am the the seventh wheel of uh, Helmgast. Right. Uh, we have one, <laughs> one part of Helm just working at Aeon, Dark Fantasy, Swedish role playing, and one part working on Cult. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am kind of the, uh, the odd man out as I do the happy and uh, cheery games. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was okay, going to say that there's a... to see you here, but uh, to be honest, it's the first time I've seen you, and you look exactly like somebody who might be making a game based on. Uh, Franco-Belgian comics should look. You don't look like somebody who works for the company that made Cult. If you're, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, so uh, you've been working with uh, Helmgast for how long? For uh, five years. Four or five years, I think. Excellent. Excellent. Time time moves fast, you know. Uh, it does. Yeah. Uh, I started off making a game called Jam Iron. Mm -hmm. uh, which was um, mythic uh, fantasy role-playing game set in the Iron Age. Mm, um, cool. And that progressed on as, uh, with a new game called Yeltena's Tid, The Age of Heroes. Which We've was really interesting translated, haven't we? I think that exists in English, came through. No, it doesn't. Oh, I'm does it not? Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll. Uh, we had some plans of translating Jan into Iron. In, into English, uh, but um, uh, we never found time to do that. Eltena uh, okay. is still in English, uh, still in Swedish, uh, and it's a uh, um, beginner-oriented gener generic fantasy role-playing game for the Swedish yeah. market. We thought that we needed a game to get the new kids in on the hobby. Mm. And, um, and so how long, while you're working in the dark Iron Age and in the in in the world of cult and all that dark stuff, you said you were the happy side of Helmgast. How long <laughs> have you had a flame burning to produce something like Troubleshooters? I have actually missed that kind of game for ages. I mean, mm -hmm. I have read all those, uh, I grew up on those uh, Franco-Belgian comics uh, and I never quite found that game uh, a similar game that fit that uh, fit that genre for quite a uh, for quite a long time. And eventually, when I was sitting in my couch reading the latest reprint of uh, Jokotsuno, which is one of them, uh, I figured out that somebody should make this. And um, since nobody else seemed to want, uh, seemed to want to make it, uh, well, I had to. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago was that? That, that moment that of revelation. Two years ago. All right. Okay. So, Dave, I think you, you've got a question you're burning to ask. Well, see, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a great fan of all those Tintin books. I don't know the genre um, much beyond, beyond that. And um, I think of the three of us, uh, I know the least about this. So, so um, Krista, tell me... Um, 
and as, as Matt was saying earlier, sell me troubleshooters. Tell me a little bit about it. Uh, okay. Um, where should I start? It's not. <laughs> I don't know if I should uh, should say that it's not the genre per, uh, per se, Franco-Belgian comics, or if I should start oh, somewhere. Okay. No, uh, that's probably a good place to start. Uh, because Franco-Belgian comics is more of a market than a, than a genre. Right. Okay. Um, and it's uh, it's uh, spread all over the Frank uh, of the French-speaking world. Uh, and it stretches every way from Tintin and the very clear line style. Uh, to the very moving in action field st style of um, uh, Spirou, mm. uh, and to the very realistic and gritty style of uh, Bernard Prince and Corto Maltese. Mm. And of course, it's a spectrum. I mean, you have, oops, sorry. Uh, it's a spectrum. You have Yokozuna somewhere in between the action field and the, uh, the re realistic. Um, and it's. Uh, it's also striking from every genre you can find, from fantasy and really magic stuff um, to the Smurfs, to Asterix, <laughs> okay. uh, all the way to, yeah, the, to the future with Valerian, the movie that right. came out sometime. So uh, it's incredibly broad, but it's limited to the French-speaking world, mm. which is really, really sad, really. I mean, th these are fantastic and great stories. <laughs> so this is a challenge for the game, isn't it? I mean, in... Oh, yes. In the English-speaking world, uh, as Dave says, we know Tintin. We know Tintin yes. quite well. We know uh, As Asterisk, I guess, as well. Yeah. Yeah, and and kind of the Smurfs, but neither of yeah. those in the game really. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I I like to. I mean, we have the Avengers, and we have the Saint mm. of, of those who are, who really remember them, uh, the Man from Uncle. Yeah. Um, Nancy but, Drew books, Famous Five, uh, Scooby Doo, of course. <laughs> and uh, I mean, these uh, all of them are basically the same. You go out there and you solve a mystery, mm. so uh, and you have fun, exciting ad adventures. I could also uh -huh. mention people like Carl Barks. Uh, <laughs> his Donald Duck stories basically basically came to be because he read uh, a national uh, an issue of National Geographic. Okay, and, and thought I would, want, I want to have an adventure at uh, wherever, and then he made it. <laughs> So in the game, what are, are you able to play kind of any one of the kind of characters you've just sort of outlined through though that, that variety of, uh, of TV? So, um, you know, you've got the Saint and the Man from Uncle, but then you've got the Avengers, which is quite a similar but different with um, yes. uh, Steed yeah. and... Uh, so are you, are, does the hey, game allow... American listeners, the Avengers we're talking about are Steed and, and Mrs. Peel. Not yeah, America and the gang. No, 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 no. Absolutely. No, no. The earlier stuff doesn't count. <laughs> so, I, so are you able to? Does the game allow you to play pretty much any kind of character across that range? Yeah, yes, I would say so. We have uh, uh, character templates for journalists, uh, curious mm. students, uh, um, traveling scholars, even spies, for that matter, okay, um, cool. um, undercover cops, and so on. <laughs> um, of course, gentleman thieves. Uh -huh. um, oh, I should mention Lupin the Third if you have if you into the Japanese market. Okay, uh, that's uh, what my son might know. I, it goes right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a long long running anime and manga about a couple of honorable thieves, uh -huh. led by the 
Arsène Lupin III, which was um, which kind of this grandson of a famous um, French detect uh, French uh, gentleman thief. Mm-hmm. I was called uh, Arsène Lupin, which was quite popular at the start of the last century. Cool, interesting. Yeah. Um, but we, but the characters are like there are these troubleshooters. They solve problems for other people. Yeah. And of course, the authorities don't like people um, poaching on their territory, so they don't like these troubleshooters. <laughs> so that's a kind of the the bad name for them in the game. Right. Ah, oh, those damn okay. risky troubleshooters. Always. Cool. The the time period of troubleshooters seems to be very focused, not just on a decade, but on a particular year. I yeah, mean, we have a starting a starting year set. Um, when we when I started to write the game, I wanted to get a fun period in time. So I looked at where, where uh, and at what I had, and I mean, I wanted somewhere some uh, a period of time where. You don't communicate easy. Mm. You have to send a telegram. You have to, yeah. uh, to uh, actually call people and find a telephone. Uh, you have to send them, uh, send them a letter. But you can't just pick up the smartphone out of the pocket and call someone. Uh, you can't look up things in a computer. So that's kind of ruled out the 19th and 2000s and the 2010s. Um, and the 1980s was too much dominated by the... Um, bad aspects of the cold war and too much punk and i so so it it wasn't what i was, was looking for and the 70s was just too drab <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure the 70s would be offended to hear you say that <laughs> yeah. well i grew up in them, so i should know uh, likewise yeah well i think actually the 60s is a really good choice because it's it's far enough away as you say to to get past all of that but still feel really nostalgic yeah. And then you're, you're not going too far and then ending up with the, the fallout of the Second World War more yeah, exactly. directly. It's a great, it's a great this, is a, uh, this is, uh, unless you're talking about the Vietnam War, it's a, it's a very, yeah. very positive area. Mm. Um, it's, it's right in the middle of what the French call the, the Golden Decades. Yeah. Um, Mm. I mean, they have just, in the real world, they had just started to build the Concorde. Mm-hmm. Um, cars were beautiful. I mean, the reason we set it in particularly in 1965 was that it was the year after the Alfa Romeo Giulietta was released. Giulietta Spider, even. Okay. And that's a, just a beautiful car. Okay. Yeah, actually, Matthew, oh. Matthew is a big fan of two CVs. I think he's about to launch into talking two CVs. Yeah, but that, that, <laughs> that's uh, like, I mean, you mean, do you know what it's called by its called two CV? De Chevaux. It's a two yes. horsepower engine. Yeah. Or, um, I, yes. I know a lot about the two CV. Don't <laughs> oh, yes. I know almost nothing about the two CV except that Matt <laughs> used to have one. <laughs> um, actually, just on cars, I don't want to come across as a car nerd. But on your mm-hmm. Facebook page, one of your drivers, oh, one of your characters is a driver. She's driving a Lancia Stratos, which yes, um, um, in the sixties, does it? No, it's actually seventy-three. <laughs> but it's a beautiful car. It's a fun car to drive, and it's like, uh, what the hell, kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's the same kind. There is a Concorde at the cover of the book, but uh, I was about to mention that as well. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah it's, it started flying in nineteen seventy-six for Reed, but uh, yes. It's a beautiful. 
Nice. It's a good attitude. I like that attitude. So yeah, it's just I mean, the it's, it's best bit of the seventies, the least drab bits of the seventies. Oh yes. Um, uh-huh. I mean, it's a, it's a, important to tell people that in, the, they can play in this era and don't care about history. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, also the Kickstarter makes mention of dinosaurs as well. Yes. So it's very much a, a fictional 60s we're playing in, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, you can find dinosaurs in any Lost Valley. So, of course, uh, they should be dinosaurs. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, it's, so it is a fictional uh, 60s. I mean, there are countries in the game world that don't exist in the real world and so on. So, so and if I was... So I was just going to say, whilst we were talking, a couple of things that sort of like come into mind. So if I wanted to role play a game of um, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, then this is the yeah. game to do it with. If I could, I could I run um, uh, something like would this work well for a game that would reflect uh, like Death on the Nile or Evil Under the Sun, one of those Agatha Christie movies with Hercule Poirot as a as the main protagonist. Yes, I think you should. Yeah, I think you could. Because um, it's definitely got that feel. It's got the right era, but, uh, yeah. but, but again, who cares? Yeah. Because I love just the, it's like the picture that Matt's got in the back of, uh, on the back of his, uh, his video. That boat just really reminds me of that, uh, those, those two great movies. I love those, those Agatha Christie films. And it just immediately made me want to, want to play that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> We're winning you over, Dave. Well, you know, we have to. It's 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 um fifteen love to you guys so far that's for sure. Okay, uh, I, I, let me let me see if I can muddy the waters a bit, Krista. Yes. Um, obviously, uh, I I'm going to speak within just the terms of Tintin here, but um, although Tintin's great, there were a couple of books which were, shall we say, more of their time, and don't necessarily come up against or don't necessarily. Uh, sit alongside modern sensibilities. So Tintin in the Congo, um, I think Tintin did some stuff in the Far East. That's a little bit, shall we say, yes, typical, if not racist. How are we dealing with that in in your world? Uh, we don't have that. <laughs> really. uh, we are quite sensitive about inclusiveness and uh, well, racism and sexism. Um, so. Yes, it was a part of the early days, but it uh, it which was also uh, those comics at that at that time were they were shy of the times. Yeah, completely. Yeah, um, and um, we don't when we do the, those things today, we don't have to follow those conventions that they had in the sixties. Um, but I get the impression it's a very globe-trotting game, so we are going to be going off and meeting different cultures. You've got to be quite careful, haven't you, about writing about. I don't know, let's say Polynesian Islanders, since we mentioned Corto Maltese, without, without stereotyping Polynesian Islanders themselves. You make, you make the characters that you meet there complex. Mm-hmm. You yeah. give them a full background and you tell their story as well. Mm. Uh, don't just make them a caricature. Mm. Um, and talking of travelling around the world, one of the things I really like about it is your character sheet is a passport. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, uh, Adventures will be coming with uh, with passport stamps so that all the players can record their adventure yeah. and their visit wherever it is in the world they've been with a passport stamp. Yeah, we came up with that idea. I mean, you have always a little, a little section of the character sheet where there's personal data, and if you're going to travel around the world, you will have that. You will have a passport. 
So of course you should record that stuff on, on that. Then it became natural to just make the, the, the character sheet into a passport booklet. And um, then every, every adventure that we will have that will go off to some place in the world will have a sticker sheet in them, mm-hmm. the visa stamps that they could put in the passport. <laughs> um, and on the deluxe level, you will get a real actual stamp. Oh, an actual? Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. now you're making me want to go to the deluxe level. I can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, one thing that we're working on uh, is actually um, a plane ticket. Oh, is this, okay. part of, is this the, uh, the upgrade for the business class? That uh, the, it will come in the, the travel set. Yeah. And it will be printable as well. And we, we, we also have a printable emergency passport. Which is ready on the archive for yeah. the people that want to start playing it. Uh, they can they can print off an emergency passport. Yeah, um, I, I love that as well. I I used to play a game set on a world where we had ID cards and the character sheet folded down into that ID card. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, but um, uh, talk, let's talk a little bit about the mechanics. Um, now I'm speaking from having run one session. Yeah. So, I can't claim to know it all yet, mm. um, but what I uh, so I can see you spoke of uh, playing uh, basic role playing games in Sweden. I'm yeah, I'm pronounced Demon and Draken. I'll, I'll screw that up in Sweden. Draken Optimon. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and so I can see that. So it's a D100 game, which um, uh, you know, which has stood the test of time. I'm playing in a RuneQuest campaign with uh, with another group of friends. But you've got a really lovely um, sort of modifier technique where people can... Um, where people just compare the ones to the difficulty level, is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if, you've got, if you've got an amazing opportunity and it's really easy, you get plus five. And then whatever percentile score you get, if, you're, if your score's five or under on the ones then you succeed even if it's 95 Um, but what i particularly like is you can take a negative modifier and risk failure on a score or whatever score you get being the, the ones being under that number in return for story points and then you spend those story points on other effects and things like that throughout the game yeah uh, there's a tight connection between story points and abilities and complications mm-hmm. and the die roll that you make in the in the game. Um, you often get this like, okay, I will make this roll harder because I'm a dr- I'm drunk. Yeah, mm-hmm. I activate my uh, alcohol my drunkard ability uh, complication, so I get two I get three story points for that, and I get minus two, which means that ones and twos on the one die. Uh, will always fail in this scene. Mm-hmm. And of course, that then encourages all the rest of the players to say, Oh, you idiot, you drunkard, you failed. I like that. It, 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 you know, it takes, uh, let's face it, one of the oldest resolution systems. If it's coming out of RuneQuest, you know, there it was in the late 70s. But it gives it a very modern feel, quite a lot like uh, Cortex system or something like that, where. Yeah you buy potential fail, or you buy things with your potential failure. Yeah, it also doesn't use math. 
which yeah. was which was uh, why we came up with this idea in the first place. There are people who don't like to do even sub, uh, additions and subtractions. Mm. Uh, but comparing comparison that's quite easy to do. Mm-hmm. Just look at the ones. Mm. Is that a one or a two? Yep. Okay, you failed. Okay. Instead of minus ten on the, your uh, skill level. Uh, yeah, and another thing that we noticed uh, as well when we were toying with this idea was that you couldn't, you never got out of the 1 to 100 scale. Mm-hmm. You always stay on that. Yeah. Yeah, so you're not you don't get 120% on something. No. Uh, which is a problem sometimes in, in MoonQuest. Uh, some other things I noticed. Um, so the idea of flipping the dice. So yep. if you've got. 91 you can turn it into a 19 and succeed yep um, how does that work what, what do you have to do to be able to flip the dice uh, usually you can always pay uh, paste two story points to do it uh, oh. and you can uh, often activate uh, an ability to do uh, to do it for one story point or in certain situations according to the ability Makes sense. Uh, not all abilities are like that, but, so, but m- many of them have that option. Okay. And the other thing I really mm. like, and I've seen it, uh, where else have I seen it? Oh, in the, in the other game I'm trying to convince Dave to play, which is Unknown Armies. Uh, mm. In Unknown Armies and in your game, if you get... Uh, Unknown Armies, of course, coincidentally, also has the flipping mechanic, actually, yeah. in circumstances. Uh, I, think, I think that I stole it from um, the old Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. Yeah. Yeah. Really? They use they use the dice for original locations. Ah, oh, cool, dear. Now I'm. It's been a long time since we played the old time. version. I, I did buy oh, the yeah. old version again, but um, never got around to playing it. But the other thing yeah. is, you get doubles. You know, thirty-three, forty-four, yeah. or whatever. Obviously, you can't flip those. You earn a story point just for rolling a double. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's it, effectively it's your critical hit, critical failure thing in that if you get a double and you've failed, then it's a really bad failure or something else bad happens yeah. as well as your failure. And if you succeed and you've rolled double, say a 33 or an 11, you not only succeed, but something really good happens. Yeah. Uh, and some of those situations are fixed in the rules, uh, especially in the combat section. Right. Um, and uh, in other places, you just improvise that something else good happens. You, you, and you always have the fallback at uh, fallback that the uh, next roll you make is uh, has a plus two modifier. And um, mm. can I ask then about death? Yeah, <sighs> it is uh, very very hard to die in the troubleshooters <laughs> because but you can die if you want to. I understand. You you really you never see any character in the uh, in Belgian French uh, Belgian French comics die, and when you do, it's always in a situation where it means something mm. very important. So maybe it's like this: that if you get you have a number of vitality points, usually between uh, four and six, and when they, they run out, you have a choice: you can get wounded or you're out cold. If you're wounded, um, you don't get that. You don't lose those vitality points that you just got, but you can still act. Uh, it will mean a negative modifier in the future, and then have that as a narrative problem. Yeah. But and 
uh, it, uh, being wounded will mean a, pro a problem in the future, but not in this fight. Right. And if, uh, but you also have the option if uh, you if you get too uh, if you lose too much vitality, you can also choose to be mortally wounded. Uh, immortal peril. Immortal peril. Mm, yeah. And if you run out of vitality, then then you're dead. <laughs> right. See, you uh, often you okay. I'm, I lost all my vitality. Okay, I'm out cold, which usually means that I'm captured by the bad guys or the other yeah. fix the situation somehow. But sometimes when it really means something, you can say, okay, I'm in mortal peril. This is real. Now get let's get dangerous. <laughs> Building but, up to the 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 sort of like the climactic. Yeah. end of a character's story that as a player you'll remember for the rest of your life kind of thing yeah, yeah. and it's your choice yeah you're absolutely right i hadn't really thought about it that you know tintin never dies none of none of his friends ever you know ever gets killed they get knocked out a lot like you say yeah but um i then think they get... i can recall one character two characters dying and that it was in uh, in that moon journey in, yeah. the, in the tintin one yeah ah okay I have got that. I obviously haven't read it for 35 years. I don't years know what it's called in English. I think one of them, there was two stories. There were two books, wasn't there? One of them yes, was De Destination Moon. Uh, yeah, okay, Destination Moon. In the second and... there, there is this villain that's, uh, that's uh, sneaked on board the, uh, the rocket, and he dies, but off screen. And another mm -hmm. character then, I'm, I don't should I spoil that, really? <laughs> um, uh, but the, and another character that shot the first the first one uh, then um, jumps off the off the rocket. Mm. But as yeah. far as I can remember, those are the only two deaths in Tintin. Excellent. No, I, I do. I love that mechanic. It's um, the, the the more narrative choice of how your character comes to meet his doom or her doom. Yeah. I think. Um, I really like that, and a lot of role-playing games don't give you that opportunity. And a lot of them, you know, it's right that you don't get that opportunity for the particular game. But a game like this, which is, as you say, based totally on uh, uh, a market of not a genre—I almost said genre—a <laughs> uh, um, market of uh, of these kind of stories. I think um, that that sounds really, really uh, intriguing. I like that very much. Yeah, um, it was the correct choice to make. I think. Just jumping back on that market, I, I'm intrigued by this because obviously, you know, in the UK, we had our own, at that time, very strong comics industry. Uh, and we had all the American comics, which in the end have sort of flooded and pushed us to the very yeah. except for 2000 AD. So yeah. in Sweden, was there a lot of translation of the Franco-Belgian comics uh, of more than just Tintin and Asterix? Uh, oh, yes. Um we had uh, we had our own comics industry, uh, but that was mostly aimed at older uh, at older guys. Uh, it was uh, of a humor that really were around in the nineteen thirties. <laughs> okay. And as a kid in the nineteen seventies, those just felt old. That yeah. was not, that was not us. <laughs> no. uh, then there were American comics, mostly Spider Man, Batman, and Superman. And um, that's it. Yeah. There were a few um, children's comics aimed for younger kids, like six or seven. Uh, still not us, when you're, <laughs> when you're 12 or 13. Yeah. Donald Duck, of course. 
But other than that, there was the Belgian and, Belgian and French comics, and they were translated in really great numbers uh, by mm -hmm. a Danish publisher called Carlson, uh, which printed them in album format, like in well, quite bigger than a normal sheet of paper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, that really satisfied our uh, cravings for uh, for cool stories. Can you, so uh, we've mentioned a few, uh, and I'm, I'm going to recommend if anybody, it's not quite within the genre of uh, the troubleshooters, but there's an American company now producing lots of Corto Maltese. So Ooh. if anybody wants to dip into the Euro comic mm -hmm. scene, then those Corto Maltese albums, I love, I love the artwork of. Hugo Pratt there. Uh, is there is there one comic that we haven't heard of that you are aware might be getting an English translation uh, that people should seek out? I couldn't mention quite a few. You have Blake and Mortimer, which is quite science fiction-y in the 1960s, okay. 50s, 60s, thereabout. I know that they are getting translated into English. Mm -hmm. uh, you have Yokozuno, which is 70s, 80s, 90s about. Still very, very spot on. Uh, and they are also translated. I would be very, very surprised. I mean, I have seen Spiro with Fantasio in English as well, but mm. I don't know how recent they were translated. Yeah, and um, I, one, one of the challenges I think is the Americans don't like the album size pages, so yeah. they often cut them about. I mean, my first Corto um, uh, Maltese pages were ruined by them trying to shrink it down into American format and just cutting out each individual mm. panel and rearranging it all. I mean, I love the US comic format and then Jan was published in that, in that size. Okay. Um, um, it's, such, it's such a great paper format, really. <laughs> but um, these French and Belgian comics should be large. Right. Yeah. 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 And this game's going to be huge, we hope, as well. Uh, yeah, I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you, Krista, for coming to talk to us about this. Um, we won't know exactly how successful uh, it is when this interview goes out, but we'll, uh, Dave and I will be monitoring the uh, Kickstarter page. We're hoping for loads of more adventures uh, to be funded by this um, show. Um, well, I'm, sit I'm sitting here kind of waiting. So I've, I've got the Kickstarter up. <laughs> okay. And I'm sitting here. Poised with my finger. Shall I back it, shan't I? Shall I? Shan't yes, I? You should. You should. <laughs> You've certainly given me a, a real choice. It looks lovely. The the artwork is great. Um, what you said about it has been really intriguing, and I can see lots of various gameplay that you could play through uh, Ooh, a yes. system like this. So, um, ah, oh, what the hell? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Live on the radio. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's not giving me other. There we go. Oh, I need to get my credit card, so I shall have to finish <laughs> that off in a minute. But um, okay. I'm I am in the process of backing it, so uh, yeah, you've convinced me. You've made a sale. Let's let's hope you made. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to say before we finish the interview? I am very privileged and happy to see the success of this game, and I'm in awe of all the love and uh, support <laughs> that we have got during these. Uh, first uh, first hours of the campaign and I hope that it will continue onto the, uh, right into the wall Yes, me too. and we should say as well uh, that there's a French version being published as part <laughs> of the same Kickstarter so if you're in France 
or you're a francophone of any sort, you can get it in French, which seems so fitting. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Well, thank you very much again, Krista. It's been a pleasure talking it to has. you. It's been a delight. So, Dave, you told him that you'd pledged for it, but have you actually kept that pledge on? <laughs> yes, I did pledge for it. And yes, I have kept that pledge on. I haven't cancelled it. Yeah. No, um, I, I did. I did have a moment where I thought I might not see it through because I've got lots of other stuff as well that's on there. But actually looking at it, um, the book is such a beautiful thing. And Krista made such a good case for the system. And I, I just I, I, I can see myself, as I, as I said in the interview, I can see myself running a uh, kind of light, light-hearted Death on the Nile or Evil Under the Sun kind of pro kind of mystery with it, which mm. I think would fit that kind of genre for me really nicely, that kind of that kind of look and feel. So yes, I am still backing it and I'm going to back it and I look forward to getting it in my hands. Yeah, I, um, I've, I've now finished that Minoan Affair, the, the quick start that they released on their website you again, as I say, you can see that on our on our YouTube channel. I had a little bit of an issue with the last scene. We overran, yeah, we got bogged down in a conflict. But I think what's kind of interesting about that is this is a game that isn't really about melee and no. range combat. I mean, the rules are there if it if it falls to that. But actually, where we had fun, we had an hilarious scene where. Our drunk academic um, went to the police to try and get some information out of them and ended up telling them everything he knew and then walking <laughs> away very satisfied that he'd told them everything they needed to know and he hadn't actually got the information out of them. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, so yeah, I could just see that happening in the comics. And um, uh, I've just had an announcement from Freel again. What have we had? Bitter Reach is on the way. Games Quest has just sent ah, it. You lucky bastards. Cool. <laughs> well, you are having it. Check your, check your I'm, I am checking thing. now. I'm checking now. Anyway, we were talking troubleshooters. Yeah, troubleshooters. Sorry. Don't, 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 get, don't, get, don't get distracted. So, you know, I think for the genre that it's portraying, I think the rules work really well. Where it stretches into maybe what, if you like, your traditional role players might be looking for. The rules might be a little bit weak on that, mm. but it was just really, we had really bad luck with the dice. So what I thought was going to be a relatively quick combat turned into a long and drawn out one that, you know, ended up not being fun. I brought the police in after all um, to bring it to a conclusion about half an hour after we'd originally planned to play to. So yeah. that was my, that's just a little thing that's niggling at me. But um, I mean, it's interesting you know, though, because I, my my experience of the Franco-Belgian comic scene is just Tintin, Hergé's Adventures yeah. of. Um, and I love those books when I was a kid. I've still got them somewhere. I think they're up in the loft because um, I couldn't bring myself to throw them away because they're so, they're so good. And in those, you don't get much punching no. and fighting. You might get one blow and then you capture the guy. Or you yeah. know, it's, it's more about the chases. You're being chased in a boat or you're being chased on a motorbike. Um, you might crash or something, but it's much less about standing toe to toe and having a punch up. And I think, yeah. you know, that's absolutely fine. If the rules kind of try to reflect that rather than reflect, you know, something where it's a harder edged game, you know, we, 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 we use Tales from the Loop as a, as a constant example for a game where you do things a bit differently. And 
I haven't felt when I've run that game that there's been a problem because you're not going to have your kid standing toe-to-toe with somebody else and beating them up until they kill them. Uh, No, and actually there's a very interesting point about that, a similarity between the two games. So you know when you've got, what do you call it when there's a complex um, trouble, sort of climactic scene at the end? of it's 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 an extended trouble, I think it's called. An extended trouble. Yeah. So there's something a bit, there's a mechanic a bit like that that they call a challenge, where basically everybody gets to roll a dice to do one thing which they planned for their challenge, and that's the way that I should have run that last scene. Yeah. Um, now, I didn't because in the second episode we did that towards the end of that the uh, that scene, and just to me it felt a little bit short and anticlimactic. But um, I think actually there's just, you get yourself into the mindset, narrate around it, and that would be the way to do it, yeah. rather than do the actual melee style. Yeah, so I mean, if you remember the the game I ran for you, Tales from the Loop, we had an extended scene or extended problem trouble at the end there, mm. which I was a bit dubious about at the time, but I felt when we ran it, it, it ran really well. It it's, did, yeah. Um, it was much more narrative-based. And but it worked, and it. it I, I completely take your point that when you look at it, I think just at the words on the page, it, it looks like it could play out very anticlimactically. But mm. sometimes, I mean, it, 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 that certainly didn't feel like an anticlimax to me in that game. But it was just a no, much no. a much quicker way of resolving that big final event in uh, in mechanical terms. And it, you know, it I think my work. fault in our second episode was squeezing that in in the last few minutes and therefore not giving people time to properly narrate it and i'm sure given the cast this is my shop group yeah they would have they would have taken the ball and run with it in the way mm-hmm. that um they did with this police encounter that was so much fun yeah um so that you know i it was anticlimactic because i didn't give them enough time to talk around it in that second right. episode and then I, the learning for me is I should have tried again in the third episode with the time to talk about it, and it might have, I think, worked better to use that system. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Anyway, we should but, move on. Yeah, only just to say, people, if you're interested, you've probably got a day or two days left to go to Kickstarter and back The Troubleshooters by Helmgast. If you're interested, get on there, go and do it. Um, I, I sincerely hope you won't be disappointed if you do that. We will put a link in the show notes. Yep. Cool. Okay. Now it's time to talk about the Order of the Pariah. And and, and talk about the fact that I haven't got notification for Bitter Reach yet. Girl. <laughs> 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 well, although, as that said, I don't always get a notification from Games Quest. Sometimes it just turns up. Anyway, yeah, have you checked? Have you checked your junk folder? Yeah, I always check my junk folder now. Every, ever since your mail started going in there for no reason. <laughs> Obviously, my inbox has got better discerning qualities than I have. Yes, <laughs> puts you straight in the junk. <clears throat> anyway, yes, Order of the Pariah. We're talking about Zalos, aren't we? That was your homework. Yes. So the last of the factions that we hadn't yet talked about. Shall we have a listen? Yeah. Let's listen to that. The Order of the Pariah are my favourite faction, but not for the reasons that you might expect. I think most players, when reading about the Order of the Pariah, with their religious fervour, 
militaristic outlook, Armonite plate armour and monastery cruisers, they picture Games Workshop space marines in their head. And frankly, that's not a bad shorthand, but I like to think of them as more nuanced. The Order of the Pariah are the Third Horizon's first freedom fighters, leading the uprising against the First Horizon and their agents, the Sacrifice of Nazarene. And of course, when independence was won and the portals closed, it was the order that carried on the fight, seeking out the vestiges of the Nazarene sacrifice, while other factions thought the fight was over. In doing so, they are more true to their origins than the other first-come factions, who were fortune-seekers, religious dissidents and rebels from the First and Second Horizons. So... Unlike the 40k space marines, the Order not only don't have imperial ambitions, they seem more willing to isolate than to spread their creed. So what is behind their lack of missionary zeal? Having defeated the forces of the First Horizon in the Portal Wars, why did they not use their military might to spread the word of the pariah across the horizon and cast out the false icons. Do they not want converts? Indeed, you have to be born of Zalos to live on Zalos. Offworlders are restricted to the moon, Kamaruk, the city of foreigners. Are they as racist as the Zenithian hegemony? A fierce war rages against the heretics of Zahardan, or Zalos B., but the rest of the horizon knows little about it. What is the nature of their heresy? Personally, I like to think that the population of Zahardan are even stricter religious zealots than those on Zalos A. But the Nomad Federation speak darkly of a war crime committed against one of their clans on that planet, so it seems that the Zahardans are at least less isolationist than the Order of the Pariah. Apart from the famous sanatorium, they run a network of soup kitchens and other poverty relief charities. Anyone, or at least anyone with the grades, is free to study at their medical academy. And yes, they become neophytes of the order while they train, but they are free to seek work for other factions when they graduate. The academy and the charitable work of the Samaritans seems at odds with the reputation they earned during the Portal Wars. And their scientific advances, including biotechnology and antimatter propulsion, suggest they are not by any means dogmatic primitivists. I like to think of the monasteries as places of learning. The sword of the judge, or the sickle of the martyr, is equivalent to Occam's razor. If you have read Anathem by Neil Stevenson, you have an idea of how I imagine the monasteries as concentric circles of learning. Here, too, is kept the memory of all the Third Horizon knows about the old enemies, Al Arda and the First and Second Horizon. In the cities, the plebeian population worship the judge, pariah, of course. What choice do they have? But their jobs are like any others. The industries serving the great monasteries at each city centre. To truly become an adherent of the faith, you must enter 
a monastery and learn. Monks are the equivalent of stationaries, with their priests, prophets and elders the privileged. There is no inheritance of title or estate. Everything is given to the order when you die, but poverty is reduced to almost zero. So I argue that their reputation as religious sellouts that cry heresy at every new thing is in fact carefully crafted. Not for nothing do they consider the foundation their biggest rival. Within the Zelosian monasteries are repositories of truth and knowledge, knowledge which the foundation wants and which, given their isolationist stance, the order believes no one should have. And therein lies a way to play some of the concepts that you might not quickly associate with the order. As an operative or data spider, you could be a spy on the foundation, checking up on what they have found out and how close they are to the hidden truth. As a scientist, you could be a priest researcher looking for evidence of portal builder technology in all the secret places of the horizon. As a negotiator, you could be a diplomat steering the other factions away from a truth they could not stand to know. It's crazy, I know, but I'm going to say it. If you want to play the crew of the Starship Enterprise in Coriolis, they should come from Zalos. What an interesting essay, uh, and what an interesting final conclusion. Um, Blows you away, if it you is want the truth. Well, is it? Is it? So I think you've, you've definitely taken... I mean, I, I do... I love your take on, on all of this, that they're actually... They're hiding something, and they're, they're hiding this knowledge, and they're, they're kind of sacrificing themselves to this knowledge to save everybody else in the Third Horizon from having to carry that burden. I, I really like that. I love the idea of... They're actually not as bonkers, nutcase wing nut as as they might seem on on the surface i think they're Where, probably quite bonkers and nutcase wing nuts actually. maybe but 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 actually their motivation for some of this or some of their motivation around this is to prevent that knowledge whatever it is um being spread more widely that might be because they you know they fear others getting that knowledge for their own safety or they fear for the safety of others or the horizon itself if that knowledge becomes more generally well known. So I, I think mm. that's a really nice, interesting take on it. Um, I do remember on the stuff that I did about the witch smellers back in the day, long time ago, or we had some conversation, it might not have even been in that piece, where we were talking about the sanatorium and I was suggesting that actually perhaps that is just a, a front to allow the the witch smellers to hunt down the heretics. It, you know, it's it's, it's entirely entirely uh, political and um, nefarious. And so it might still be. Yeah. You know, I, I think it is there to be a front. I don't think, uh, you know, I, I, I imagine uh, that they are using it to um, uh, to get people in into positions uh, around Coriolis, around the Third Horizon, effectively, yeah. where they can do stuff and hunt down heretics. And I firmly believe that they believe that there is only one icon and that icon is the pariah stroke the martyr stroke the judge but it is it is interesting though for as you say a a a, a fanatical faction of zealots if they genuinely believe that why aren't they going out 
getting more converts? Why aren't they fighting, fighting against all of that? Um, Remember how we worked out how young the, 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 the Church of the Icons was? You know, there was nothing there 60 years ago. The Church of the you know, they, they had an open field that they could have stormed in and we'd all be worshipping the judge now. But no, no, they didn't do that. But maybe, maybe for the, for the, for the Order of the Pariah, this knowledge is, um, yeah, is so shocking that they they don't want to go out and uh, sort of reduce the power of the other icons because maybe they know something about the judge and it's only the other icons that are holding the judge back from mm. doing something terrible or horrendous, something apocalyptic for the Third Horizon. So actually, as much as they want to go out there and promote the judge and get more people worshipping uh, that icon, they, they fear to do that because it would weaken the others. And maybe that, that would is then... a very interesting mm. idea. So it's something interesting that, you know, another interesting slant on them that maybe there's a faction in the Order of the Pariah who welcomes that, maybe? Well, there is a faction I didn't talk about called the Vale, um, who uh, are really actually, you know, they are guys who don't like looking at portal technology or anything like that. They want to close all the portals. So maybe they want to be even more isolationist than the uh, than the, um, the the majority of the Zelossians, or maybe they want to work against the Zelossians and and release a a mad judge <laughs> on the Third Horizon. Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Although there are there are things in the Mercy of the Icons campaign that may have a bearing on this, and as you are playing in that campaign, I cannot reveal them to you. No, no, we don't want any spoilers. Um, okay, to avoid spoilers then, um, I want you to convince me, tell me why you think that the crew of the Enterprise should come from Zalos, because I'm not, I'm not on the same page as you there, I don't think. I need a bit of convincing. Okay, I can understand why you're not on the same page. Let's <laughs> face it. Not yet, the, not yet. The, the Federation of Planets is expansionist in a way that the Zelossians are definitely not. But let me remind you of the Prime Directive. Go on, then. The Federation <laughs> are hoarders of knowledge. They are not necessarily sharers of knowledge. And that comes from, you know, and the Vulcans were the same. Oh, everybody's just got to discover their own space flight. They can't, you know, we're not, we're not going to help them. So... Uh, they are keepers of knowledge. They're scientists. They've got, uh, even within the Federation, we've got something that we don't think is crazy. But frankly, if you look at all the applications of the Prime Directive in, in Star Trek, I think you could see that through a lens that showed the Federation as weird religious sellouts, where the religion itself isn't important, but but they behave in a very strange way. Um so I'm just saying these guys, you know, what we could do is have a crew that are out exploring, finding strange new worlds, new life and new civilizations <laughs> and keeping it to themselves and not letting anybody else uh, engage with it. And sometimes that's what the Federation does. OK, I- I'm still not heartily convinced. Um... Well, I, t- I really, I put it in there to say they're not just 40k mercenaries and they could no. be the crew of the Starship Enterprise. Well, that's interesting because I never, ever thought of them as 40k space marines, actually. 
Well, you haven't played um, enough 40k then, mate. Uh, <laughs> I've played a fair amount. Not recently, but um, over the years I played loads. Um, nah, yeah. I never really thought saw them as that. I did, never really saw them as uh, as the federation either. Um, but it's an interesting take. Um, are, are you are you advocating then a campaign of you know the the pariahs spaceship enterprise going out? Well, and I think if stuff? somebody said to me, "This is what I you know this is you know if I took a group on board and we said, "What's our favourite science fiction?" And they went, um, uh, the Expanse and Star Trek say, then I might well suggest, uh, even though it feels like this is not a faction that would fit either of those two things, <laughs> I, I, I think it's a faction I might suggest. And yeah. they could have fun with it. And it would be similar, but very different to those things. Yeah. I do, yeah. I, I'm not entirely bought on, sold on, on that Starship Enterprise thing. But I do very much like some of the ideas that are coming out from your, your piece there about about them hoarding that information and why are they hoarding it. It's not just for yes. pure, purely uh, purely personal reasons. And remember what their catchphrase is in the core book, which we yeah. started this, this episode with. What do they know that tells them the end is near? Yeah. And then what are they doing about it? Not much. Hiding. Well, they're accepting the end, obviously. They're, ha- yeah. they're happy with the situation. They don't need to change much. So, so you're saying this is this is an entire faction of people walking around wearing loincloths with like sandwich boards over their shoulders saying, the end is nigh, the end is nigh. No, no, no. <laughs> there are plenty of them and whipping themselves at the same time because there's a lot of flagellants, but there are also priest scientists who know exactly why the end is nigh. They're not doing it because they're nutters. They're doing it because they have scientific proof. Do they have scientific proof or do they have religious proof? No, I think they have scientific proof. These are the guys that build anti-radical rockets and armour that can absorb enormous amounts of damage. They are not not scientists. That's the whole point of my thesis. Yeah, That's why I say they're the the Federation. Cool. No, that's good. Really Have good. you ever read Anathem, Dave? No, I haven't, actually. No. Well, the last Neil Stevenson book I recommended to you, you didn't finish. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm loath to do it. Uh, but Anathem is another one I would recommend. I really enjoyed Seven Eves, right to the point where they jumped to the future. And then it, it lost my interest because it wasn't the story I cared about. I cared about kind of the end of, of how we managed to cope with that rather than you should have stopped the book at the point where they were they've managed to set up on the asteroid and were holding it, holding it, holding it up there. Ah, you see, I, I, I like In the book view. as a whole and I'm you know, there's a role playing game there, actually. Where you're one of the seven e well not seven Eves, you're one of the descendants of the seven Eves. Yeah. Oh oh spoilers. Ignore <laughs> that. It, it was a good book. I mean I enjoyed it. I say I just um I think you you listened to it on Audible or something, didn't you? So maybe it was a bit edited. It was it's it's a big book. It's a bit. It was a bit of a. Believe uh, me, bit, it wasn't edited. But at least you don't have to read it. <laughs> you just have somebody mouthing off, and he wasn't yeah. even the best reader. Uh, I'd have loved for them to get Neil deGrasse Tyson to read it because yeah, yeah. he's in the book, really, effectively. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. I did love that character. Yeah, that was. 
there's a lot of good about it. I don't want to put people off. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, read right. Seven Eves, people. That's Dave's recommendation. <laughs> and also read Anathem. That's my recommendation. We're going to finish every episode with two books, aren't we? With a book recommendation. To read. <laughs> well, I, I, can, I can recommend many more than two. But um, yes. But right, what, think... what, what are we doing? Um, so next week, you are finally going to be reviewing a whole bunch of Free League stuff. Huh? Yes. A Free League. Workshop stuff. Workshop stuff, absolutely. I'll be looking at that and uh, reporting my findings back to you. And I think I've scheduled an interview. Just remind, I'm just trying to remember, but I think I've got an interview scheduled with the creator of Trilemma Adventures and Craig, who is creating a another free league. Well, I don't know whether it'll be a free league workshop thing, but he's, trans, he's creating a bestiary for Forbidden Lands. Oh, yes. So that you can... Uh, play the Trilemma Adventures in yeah. your Forbidden Land setting. Excellent. Cool. Well, I think we've definitely banged on longer than we'd intended to today, as always. So yes. unless, unless you've got any other messages to throw in, Matthew? No, I'm going to shut up now, Dave. Excellent. That's a first. Um, so it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him, and may the judge bring apocalypse to the third horizon. So what are you saying, you crazy, crazy <laughs> idiot? Well, the end is near, after all. <laughs> you have been listening to The Effect Podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music stars on a black sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing.